Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, IFG Programme Director for All Things Civil Service and this week's stand-in chair. It's recess and the Commons is on a break, but that doesn't mean things have stopped happening. Tensions over Ukraine hit a new level this week as the US and UK warned that a Russian invasion could be imminent and that their citizens should leave immediately. At home, it's royal scandals rather than number 10 parties leading the front pages, but the Met investigation into lockdown gatherings is now at questionnaire stage. And meanwhile, inflation is at new highs. Enjoy your half-term holiday. We'll talk today about the latest Ukraine developments, what are the risks, what's the latest, and how do decisions made in the Kremlin play out in Whitehall and Westminster. And meanwhile, this is the Institute for Government podcast, so we'll bring you a very insidery inside briefing and dig into the Cabinet Office. What is this obliquely named, oddly shaped central department that normally prefers to operate by stealth and in troubled times gets plenty of blame and none of the glory? I'm very glad to have with me two people who understand the Cabinet Office and matters of national security all too well. Sir David Liddington, having been Justice Secretary, Europe Minister and Leader of the Commons, was Theresa May's Minister for the Cabinet Office between January 2018 and July 2019. Hello, David. Hi, Alex. And Kieran Martin, now a Professor at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford, as well as heading the National Cyber Security Centre, has held several senior posts in the Cabinet Office, including declaration of interest alert being my boss when he led its constitution group. Hello, Kieran. Hello, Alex. And very good you were too. (laughs) That's enough incestuousness. Uh, And to complete our lineup, I'm pleased to be joined by someone who's very proud of never having worked in the cabinet office, but still knows far too much about it. Uh, Kath Haddon leads our ministers and constitution work, as well as covering all things civil service history. Hi, Kath. Hello, Alex. So we'll start with Ukraine. Uh, David, we've reached a nadir, it seems, with Russia relations. Um, But of course, Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014. How much has something like this been on the cards since your time in office? I think it's it's been on the cards because of all that time, because I think the fundamental problem is nothing to do with NATO. Um, That's a shibboleth that that, that Putin is using. Uh, The fundamental challenge is that if Ukraine uh, successfully asserts its own independence and sovereignty, that represents a mortal threat to Putin and his regime in Russia, because it's a country right next door. Uh, and for that country to, to say, actually, we can offer something better and succeed, the message to Russians there will be, well, why can't you have some of this as well? And that's the very last message the Kremlin wants. And how far do you think the sort of domestic political considerations then are playing in Putin's mind? I appreciate that's an impossible question, but uh, what do you think? It's an impossible question to be, to, to be certain of. This will be the, a decision of one man, President Putin. Putin has a clear strategic objective, which is to reduce Ukraine to, uh, that, that well-known phrase, a vassal state, um, in, in the true sense of the term, you know, a, a, a state that is weak, divided, impotent, with Russia having uh, an effective uh, say over Ukraine's international alignment and domestic political choices. That's what he wants. If he can get that without using military force, well, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll take that opportunity. So we'll see the economic pressure on Ukraine continuing. We'll see the cyber attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure and institutions continuing. And we'll see the diplomatic battle. And I'm quite convinced one of Putin's options is to use the threat of military action to try to bully a number of European leaders, particularly France and Germany, into accepting Moscow's spin on the Minsk agreement and, and then pressuring 
uh, Zelensky in Kiev to give the Russian-controlled regions in the east of the country an effective veto over Ukrainian policy through some constitutional change to, 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 to have a sort of federal system where each state has a veto on what the national government can do. If he can't see any way to win other than by using force, he'll use force. I mean, look at Ukraine 2014, Crimea, Donbass, uh, how Putin has been quite unafraid to use force and uh, shown indifference to large-scale slaughter of civilians in Syria, his use of Russian mercenaries in parts of the Sahel, right through to the chemical weapons attack in Salisbury, which uh, left a civilian British citizen dead. I'm afraid I am deeply gloomy. I think that the, the best hope is that Western resolve remains strong. I think so far the Western response has been pretty solid and robust. And we need, in the UK and elsewhere, to step up on our sanctions measures in the hope that that will deter Russia from military action. And if it doesn't, that it will uh, present the, the, the Putin regime with a very heavy cost. Fascinating and uh, concerning, and uh, events could move very quickly, I'm sure. Uh, Kieran, there's lots of discussion and some dramatic pictures about forces massing on the border. And meanwhile, Ukraine seemed to suffer another major cyber attack this week. Um, we've talked uh, a lot over the last few years, and I know you know a lot about needing to change our conception of modern warfare. Is this a conflict that's, that's already underway? Well, if you talk to any Ukrainians, and had the privilege of doing that in my past career, they will tell you that when you're talking to them about the threat of war, they'll tell you that they've been at war with Russia since 2014. They're very moving memorials in central Kiev to the more than 10,000 Ukrainian troops who've been killed in border skirmishes and so forth. And so I think you need to see the cyber operations by Russia in that context. What happened a few days ago was a large-scale but relatively unsophisticated attack technically on Ukrainian banks and the defence ministry. And I don't think that tells you one way or the other whether or not more serious military uh, action, including an invasion, is more likely or not, because what's been happening between Russia and Ukraine in the cyber domain for seven, eight years has been severe cyber harassment by Russia. And for example, the Ukrainian treasury was taken out in a similar attack, disrupting some state payments to citizens in December 2016. So this isn't new. And I think to David's point about Russian objectives, on which I'm not an expert, but I would concur insofar as I understand them, that it's to uh, suborn Ukraine as a vassal state in some way or other. That could be through some form of occupation or it could be through some form of political change. The cyber dimension to this, and Ukraine is Russia's cyber playground. No country in the world has suffered serious cyber harassment as Ukraine has in the last um, seven, eight, eight years. The cyber dimension of this could be deployed in support of some military intervention, but whatever happens, it is being deployed constantly to undermine Ukrainians' confidence in their own society, in their own government, in its information and in its ability to discharge its functions and in Ukrainians' way of life. So I'm afraid my gloomy assessment is whatever happens, if we do walk back from the brink, as hopefully happens, but I, I don't know whether that will happen, I fear that the continued high-level and quite disruptive cyber harassment of Ukraine by Russia will, will continue. 
A few weeks ago on this podcast, we talked about the government's integrated review, uh, the the statement of uh, foreign and security policy it published last year with uh, Lawrence Friedman, who also knows a lot about these things. His perspective was was very interesting, which is that while there has been some criticism of the integrated review for um, uh, for um, you know, underestimating conventional warfare, which is part of what we're we're seeing in in Ukraine potentially. Lawrence thought uh, the government and the and the integrated review had got it about right. Do you agree with that? Or do you think there's a, there are some adjustments that are needed? Well, I have a broadly positive uh, view of the integrated review. I think it was a good piece of government. I don't agree with every last uh, word in it. I think there's a little bit in it in the cyber dimension that speaking globally rather than the current Russia-Ukraine crisis, um, cast technology as a sort of um, a little bit of a monster to be afraid of and uh, contested rather than primarily a force for social and economic good that needs to be managed. So there's a little bit of that. But I think in terms of its realistic appraisal of um, hybrid threats and the sort of activity we're seeing now, it's pretty smart. And I think that that's been shown in, uh, I would concur with David's assessment of the Western response has been pretty uh, robust so far. And I certainly have no criticism of the government here's um, approach uh, to it. I think it's been imaginative, it's been uh, robust, and it's been well uh, coordinated. So I think that the, the appraisal of the scenarios in the integrated review have been pretty much vindicated. What we'll now see is whether they can withstand the test of reality. Thanks, Kieran. And Kath, there's quite a bit on the Prime Minister's plate mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, how do you think he's dealing with this crisis? Can he compartmentalise it? Well, I mean, eventually, you know, a Prime Minister has to do so. And I, one of the things, I mean, we'll go on to talk about the Cabinet Office, but he does have very strong national security, foreign affairs advice around in prime ministers. That's one of the areas where they have the strongest institutional memory, the strongest structures and so forth. And we can talk a bit about the National Security Council. I think what's quite notable, I mean, uh, you know, both David and Kieran have talked about the Western resolve. You are seeing quite a lot of unity, certainly between UK and US. Uh, So the messaging has been pretty consistent when they come out with a new line, like we've been seeing in in recent days, in terms of intelligence warnings, those seem to be well coordinated. And actually, I think it's quite notable that we haven't seen the Prime Minister that front and central. He did make, obviously, a trip over there. But actually, it's Ben Wallace who's been leading on a lot of this, and obviously Liz Truss on the diplomatic front. She's in a very difficult position. Anyone going over to Russia at the moment is likely to have the kind of press conference that, that she had. Obviously, it's a massive crisis to be dealing with when you're relatively new as a foreign secretary. I think it's fair to say that from the outside, Ben Wallace seems to be having a very good crisis. There's a sort of seems to be a very calm and steady hand there. I think the the big question in all of this, it always is with any crisis like this, there's the long perspectives, which, you know, will be debated endlessly. How did the West end up getting in this position? Uh, Is there more that could have been done at, at various other times? And then there's dealing with the immediate crisis. And I think that kind of goes to what in the end is Putin trying to do here? Because if it's about an invasion, and Lawrence Friedman said that, you know, that's a crazy idea for Russia because it's going to have a massive backlash, uh, sanctions and, and whatever else. Uh, also, installing a puppet government just won't work for you. So if it's deterring that, then perhaps, you know, we'll see in the coming days, but perhaps they're doing quite well on on trying to hold the line on that. But the question is whether actually what Putin's trying to do here is what David's talking about, the sort of encirclement 
where you're just keeping up the the tension and the stress on Ukraine by having these mass ranks on the borders. And that could mean that this goes on for months and months and months. And that becomes a lot more complicated. So um, I don't know on the inside how how people are feeling about it, but from the outside, that's how it looks. Yeah, really interesting. And government clearly keen to to sort of adopt a sober tone and not not suggest that they're deliberately uh, distracting from um, from other things that are going on. I, Kieran Kath mentioned the um, National Security Council. There, this is a an innovation from two thousand and ten, a sort of Gordon Brown, then David Cameron set up. How does that work, and has it dramatically changed how the centre of government responds to crisis like this? I think it's been a very positive development. As you say, sort of chronologically, the Brown administration started to do some of this, but I think it did take on a new momentum um, under the coalition with the formal establishment of the National Security Council. And um, I think it works in two ways. People sometimes fixate on National Security Council meetings. So I've seen a bit of commentary in the current crisis of how many times have the NSC met and so forth. And I'm not sure that matters a great deal unless it's in abeyance uh, completely, which I understand uh, it isn't. But I think that in terms of cross-government capabilities, analysis, you know, fusion, to use the buzzword, which we'll come back to in a minute, um, of intelligence capabilities, defence analysis, but also wider foreign policy, economic, uh, on some, sometimes development understanding. I think it's uh, a very good example of the state pulling together to make uh, the total more uh, greater than the sum of its parts. I think that was clear from an early uh, stage. I don't think it's now a contentious part of the system. You know, in the event of a change of government at some a party of government at some point in the future, I'd be very surprised if a future Labour government uh, sought to roll it back. And I think the lesser observed part of it is the machine behind it. It is, in some respects, classic cabinet uh, government. There is a reasonably sized team uh, pulling together under the National uh, Security Advisor that draws in from across the uh, government machine. And so I think the Cameron administration and David Cameron personally deserve quite a lot of credit uh, for it. I also think that Mark Sedwell, as National Security Advisor, sort of took it up a notch. David Liddington mentioned the Salisbury um, case and, you know, horrific though it was, I think the UK's diplomatic and wider response to that was pretty good and surprised a lot of people in terms of how effective it was at building uh, an international coalition and, and applying sanctions. And I think what Mark called his fusion doctrine of bringing together everybody and looking at all realms of, of state power is really good. So, for example, if you take my speciality of the of, of the cyber domain, there's a lot of nonsense talked sometimes. This is a cyber attack. Are we going to retaliate with the cyber attack? Well, that's not the way statecraft works. You use the tools that are appropriate to the situation, your own capabilities, what's most effective and what's most consistent with your values. And I think the National Security Secretary at the National Security Council structure allows you to have that conversation in a much more meaningful way than say when I started a quarter of a century ago. That's a great lead into our next subject. Let's turn our attention to the Cabinet Office. To help him escape his political troubles, Boris Johnson has said he'll create a new office for the Prime Minister. There's been a lot of uh, attention on what that might mean for number 10, 
but it will also have really big consequences for the Cabinet Office. So we'll have a look at what it means for the 106-year-old department that's meant to represent Cabinet government, this odds and sods department, uh, and why some might want to abolish it entirely, or or whether it's time to resurrect a civil service department that Margaret Thatcher uh, ended up getting rid of. So, Kath, uh, we'll start with you as the only one of us who hasn't worked in the Cabinet Office, but probably therefore understands it better than anyone. A simple question that might have a complex uh, answer. What's the Cabinet Office and why do people have a problem with it? Well, I mean, you started off with the, you know, the origins of it, 106 years old, and it was about cabinet government, but it was created in the middle of the uh, First World War, largely around a cabinet secretariat. This was the novel idea that actually you might write down what the cabinet decided and then think about how to action those and go off and do them. So thank God that they did that. And now we have uh, all manner of bureaucracy uh, for how we, we deal with cabinet decision making. So that's what's interesting around it. And that's why its constitutional position is quite awkward, because in essence, it's about the idea that we are governed by a cabinet who make decisions collectively. And the job of the cabinet office is to help facilitate that, to, to get papers together, to get discussions happening, to manage all the different cabinet secretariats and so forth. But actually, it's grown way beyond that. You called it the odds and sods. It's kind of accumulated different bits. And some of that is the national security stuff that we've been talking about. Some of that's things to do with like the honours system or public appointments or other sort of aspects of the constitution that have sat there or have moved elsewhere around government. And then some of it is actually things to do with the management of the civil service that doesn't have its own home, which is quite extraordinary for such a you know, large organisation. But really it's always sort of gone backwards and forwards between departments managing their own staff and then this idea of a civil service as one body that you manage from uh, from one place. And that's kind of split always between the cabinet office or similar bodies and the treasury. And that's why, you know, if you're going to get rid of some of the cabinet secretariat stuff and give that more directly to the prime minister and this prime minister and cabinet office that they're they're developing, it opens up this question of, well, could you do something more cohesive for the civil service and, you know, Will we recreate the civil service department? There we go. That's that's a brilliant IFG question. And yeah. uh, just, I, I mean, what, one more bit of preamble, I suppose, is is how uh, is the cabinet office the prime minister's department? How does it fit with with number ten? Or so is it, is there a prime minister's department already, and it's just called the the cabinet office? Well, technically, prime minister's office, as it is now called, we call it number ten, is part of the cabinet office as a department. Uh, so that's its current position. So there's you know a lot going to be lots of shuffling of people and organisations and all sorts to sort of work out how this happens. But no, it kind of looks in both directions. It sort of answers to the Prime Minister because they are such a dominant person. They do control the agenda of cabinets uh, and therefore they get quite a lot of control about how decisions are taken and what the decisions are, even if they are ostensibly decisions of the whole cabinet. Actually, Prime Ministers have quite a lot of power over that. So the Cabinet Office, yes, it always ends up looking at the Prime Minister But it sort of has this constitutional role where it thinks about the cabinet as a whole and collective responsibility. And so it's sort of trying to be a bit of an impartial player when that's concerned. In actual fact, you know, for departments, it often feels like it's a player in its own right interfering in what they're trying to do. So there's a kind of weird tension that goes across it that, you know, insiders sort of understand implicitly. But for a lot of people on the outside is is quite bizarre. Thanks, Catherine. David, uh, what's it like to, to be the minister overseeing it? Did you enjoy interfering in what other departments were uh, getting up Sometimes. to? Sometimes. I mean, the, 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 there is, the, there is the, the implementation unit 
inside the cabinet office that is there to find out what's going wrong where, with the delivery of key government priorities. So, so in a sense, the things being talked about for a prime minister's department are there part of the cabinet office setup. But it was fairly collaborative. You, 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 you had a common interest as ministers in trying to get to the bottom of where the difficulties were and working out how to solve them. You come in as minister for the cabinet office, you're not given a map. There's no neat organigram that shows you how these bits fit together. And you keep coming across new elements. The civil contingencies planning sits in the cabinet office. And also something something called the Royal Names Unit that sits there that, that decides um, or recommends to ministers which ta- used to run it which ta- <laughs> towns you know maybe maybe given the the prefix of royal and it's not a department that has a natural easy commonality of purpose because it is made up of these disparate elements in the way that Kath was describing the Royal Names Unit, you brought back memories there. I'll uh, uh, save for another time the story of how we uh, made an Italian hotel dig up its swimming pool because it had uh, an image of the crown uh, uh, embedded in it. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. Um, uh, Kieran, you've had, um, you've had various different, uh, uh, different jobs, in the, all sorts of different jobs in the Cabinet Office. How, how far do you think it's a cohesive uh, department or is it a sort of bunch of odds and sods as Kath was describing? Much more the latter. I've got my own little anecdote to add to David's. I remember once um, in the before the coalition came to power, so in the later years of New Labour, the cabinet office decided um, to try as part of its staff engagement strategy to run a programme called One Cabinet Office to encourage a greater sense of coherence. You may remember this, um, Alex. And I remember at the time I was working on the third floor of 70 Whitehall, which amongst other, uh, hosts the the canteen, or at least it did then, uh, but it also hosts where some of the classified uh, functions of the National Security Secretariat are, and you're not allowed to bring phones in and all of that stuff. And a lot of people were there on secondment from national security agencies and all the rest of it. And at the same time, there was the Office of the Third Sector, which was designed to bring charitable institutions and other voluntary organizations more into public services. I remember thinking when you had these sort of, you know, staff away days and so forth, what do you do to tell these two disparate groups of people what they have in common? And what they have in common essentially is a central function of government. But there, I mean, you could probably list half a dozen different functions. I mean, as Kath said, it's important when, in this debate to remember that constitutionally, number 10 is just a business unit of the cabinet office and parliamentary votes and, and, and legal terms. So it's got PM support function. It's got servicing the whole cabinet function. As David says, it's got a sort of chasing progress and government implementation function. It's got um, specific, if you like, prioritized cross-governmental uh, 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 functions. You could call them pet projects, regulations sometimes. Cyber has been one where I worked closely with um, uh, David when he was the de facto deputy uh, prime minister. And it has specific functions ranging from honours and so forth. And because of a quirk of machinery of government at the time of coalition, you know, a huge constitutional brief, which isn't just the sort of dignified parts, but the parts that you and I used to work in, Alex, you know, the administration of elections, parliamentary reform and, and all the rest of it. So cohesion is is, is really quite hard. Could, if I just to chip in, it, it's, not, it's not just a matter of you know, cabinet office ministers allegedly wanting to interfere with other departments. You also get prime ministers pick a particular pet priority and they put that into the cabinet office to try to get the centre of government focused on. You, you've had this with the Johnson government, for example, has given the cabinet office veterans affairs that... that um, Capitals had a, had, a, had a say in before, but were primarily with defence. And also you get departments that are very keen to palm difficult questions off onto the cabinet office. I mean, I, when I was the minister, I, I used to keep having to fend off 
efforts by some of my cabinet colleagues to land me with family policies. They all said, oh, it's cross-cutting. It goes right across departments. <laughs> it's a natural for the cabinet office. What they meant was that they didn't want to have to reach into their budgets to fund any family policy initiatives. And they didn't want themselves or their ministers having to answer questions or turn up for debates in the House of Commons on the subject. <laughs> Try and get shove it onto my desk. So, so there, that tension operates operates in both ways. And you can end up with some very odd uh, situations. So, for example, at the moment, when Michael Gove moved from the Cabinet Office to the, the, the rechristened sort of levelling up um, Housing and Communities Department, he took with him the Minister of the Cabinet Office's responsibilities for devolution and as an overarching view of devolution relations with the devolved administrations. But the Cabinet Office still has the lead on constitutional affairs. So constitutional affairs are sitting in the Cabinet Office. The Prime Minister next door to the Cabinet Office is the Minister for the Union. But uh, Michael Gove, in his new capacity, still has an overarching responsibility for devolution. So these are not neat uh, or necessarily coherent divisions of labour. Kath, you mentioned earlier uh, previous attempts to set up civil service departments with this potential new office of the Prime Minister. Um, that does seem to imply that we'll have something like Rump Cabinet Office, which is a civil service department. I mean, why didn't it work before? Uh, what uh, what went wrong? Well, I mean, actually, oftentimes it's personalities, because what we're talking about here is, you know, as David just said, it's not a neat division of responsibilities. And often it is that portfolios go with people. And it's not just with the minister that they go with. It's also with the lead official. So the Civil Service Department, this was something that came out of uh, the 1968 Fulton Report, a big civil service reform piece that, that lots of people still look back to because we didn't solve a lot of the stuff that was in it. But the reason why it uh, struggled was partly because you had a separation between the cabinet secretary uh, who is the sort of person who runs all these cabinet secretariats, but also often the, the prime minister's lead advisor, so very close to the prime minister, and then the head of the civil service, who, you know, ostensibly this used to be just a title, but now increasingly has got sort of more of a management role. And that's going to be the big challenge that they again face, because we now have a head of the civil service who is the cabinet secretary, but if reports are to be believed, you know, we might see him ending up or her in the future. Uh, we might see Fingers him, crossed. Yeah, him um, going over to this new office for prime minister and cabinet because that's where the secretariat stuff's going to sit. But then you might still have the civil service departmenty type stuff, i.e. civil service reform, management issues, a lot of remaining stuff, say, uh, with Alex Chisholm who is the chief operating officer. They used to have a chief executive. So lots of different titles, but ostensibly it's the person, the portfolio they've got and the sort of power that they have. So then the question becomes, how do they manage that division between the two of them? When there's crucial issues coming down the line on civil service reform, does it get shoved in the corner or do actually they work cohesively together? And that was the problem with the, the civil service department of old was effectively Ian Bancroft, who was then running it, got sidelined by Margaret Thatcher. And I've, I've read the reports. It's quite funny because in the end, the thing that sunk him was he wrote a report on civil service reform and Thatcher scribbled all over it. Jargon. Nonsense. Uh, and so actually, it's a, it's a good lesson that when you're doing civil service, 
terms of form, don't hide behind jargon because that might be the thing that sinks it. Yeah, writing skills yeah. uh, are still uh, Im- important. That's a great story. Uh, I mean, Kieran, uh, building on that, how how does the cabinet secretary fit into all of this? Do you think we're heading back to having a separate head of the civil service in in reality, if not in name? I'm not sure. We don't have very many details of this proposed reform. And I think you know, it's in a relatively recent past that we uh, split, that the functions were split. And uh, I think Peter Hennessy described it as a, as a friendless reform at the time. And I think it remained a friendless reform. I also think um, uh, there's one, uh, there, there are probably one or two sacred cows that could do with a bit of slaughtering in this discussion. Uh, one is the sort of whole thing around is there a sort of constitutional distinction between the function of serving the prime minister and the function of serving cabinet? And whilst historically many people have said there has been, I think it's withered and uh, blurred into uh, irrelevance quite a long time ago. I mean, the cabinet office I worked in, I think, had relatively little difficulty in doing both at the same time. And whilst obviously number 10 had its own distinct operating culture and uh, close access to the PM. Uh, Part of the cabinet office, especially in things like national security, felt like a department of prime minister and cabinet um, already. So I'm not sure that's a great constitutional division to get uh, wound up on. The second thing I would caution against, and it's really basic, but I sort of feel it needs to be uh, pointed out. When you get to these attempts, and there have been so many over the years to reform the centre of government, it's very often, let's use sort of private sector concepts, and I don't have a problem with that. But I think we do under estimate the resilience and enduring nature of the departmental structure. So for example, you bring in things and you say, well, you know, you'll be chief executive of the civil service or something like that, or chief operating officer, and you imbue the sense of a private sector culture. But if you're the prime minister and or the cabinet secretary, and you're thinking, right, this is the central function of government, and let's run it like a private sector organization. Okay, well, let's have a finance director in the central operation. Well, no, the finance director of government is the chancellor of the exchequer. And that's always going to be the case. So I think we, you know, we do really need to make sure that unless we're going to go for some absolutely radical uh, structural and constitutional change in the way we govern the the country, that we're sort of giving people uh, realistic uh, briefs, whatever sort of title we give them. That's really interesting. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, David, how would would you carve it up? I, I think there is a strong need for a more effective centre of government that is focused upon uh, the delivery of the government's collectively agreed policies, and in particular those that cut uh, right across uh, individual departments' uh, agendas. So levelling up under this government is, the, is one key example. Uh, net zero carbon would be a second. Something like reducing reoffending or ending rough sleeping and reducing homelessness would be a, an additional one. My view is that you you need, therefore, to have two things happen. First, I think you need to reform the the process for public spending allocations. At the moment, the allocation of money is decided in a completely separate process from the making of policy or decisions about the implementation of policy. Which hard choice is the government going to make? Should the government give priority to three extra destroyers? to three extra prisons? Which does it need most because it can't rationally afford both? So I think that that collective centre of government enforcement implementation mechanism involving with the Treasury in the spending round decisions, I think is, is important. But then I also think you need a clear political head 
whom the Prime Minister trusts implicitly and therefore has delegated authority from the Prime Minister to chair committees of cabinet ministers, to bang heads together, to broker compromises, to try and bulldoze and answer a choice through the system. Prime Ministers inevitably are a little bit cautious about appointing to a clear number two position somebody who might aspire to the top job themselves. The Johnson government seems, in its appointment of Steve Barclay as chief of staff, to be edging towards a slightly different solution, which is um, like the Germans have. The head of the Chancellor's office, the Bundeskanzleramt, is a cabinet minister and one of the Chancellor's intimate allies from his or her political party. I don't think we've yet seen whether this government has a thought-through plan to actually drive implementation, which I think is what the Prime Minister actually mm. wants to see happen. Mm. Thanks, David. And uh, I mean, Kath, you uh, talked earlier about civil service department being sidelined. We've got mm. multi-jobbing Steve Barclay as a cabinet office minister. We've got Jacob Rees-Mogg now as minister for government efficiency. Michael Ellis as the new minister in the cabinet office. Uh, it does feel a little bit now like all that energy that Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove generated around civil service reform is uh, dissipating. What do you think this means for, for civil service and government reform? Yeah, I do, I do think that's a risk. I mean, uh, you know, talking about sacred cows, another one we should we should slaughter is, is that the idea that civil service reform just happens when you have a big paper <laughs> that yes. come out. It's actually something that, I mean, it should be business as normal for the civil service because constantly reforming yourself, improving, you know, on all of the things that we always talk about is really important but also it frankly should be something that's boring it shouldn't just happen in in big moments but it does need that support because otherwise there's so much going on in government it's very easy for departments to get sidelined into to other issues and suddenly the stuff that seems so important you know when you did the declaration for government reform last year and said we're going to achieve all of these um, you know, that just goes off of the agenda. And we've seen it time and time again that a few years after another big reforming paper, it just sidelines and then you you end up having to do another one. But the other thing that I'd say is that whatever happens with civil service reform, you know, you need to end up having a cabinet office that institutionally understands how to do that. Because another problem with the cabinet office is often it's at the centre of power, it feels very big and important and so forth. And it doesn't realise that some of what it's doing isn't really understood out there. I remember I went and interviewed a load of people about some reforms from the early 2000s. And I would say to departments, what about this reform, that reform or whatever? And they'd say, never heard of it. And for people in the cabinet office, it was the most important thing that they were doing. And they thought that everyone must have known about this. And I mean, even, you know, a few years ago, talking about contemporaneous reforms, I was encountering people across the civil service who'd never heard of it. So there is always a risk that the cabinet office thinks that what it's doing is the most, that it is the centre of the world um, and not understanding that actually sometimes the rest of government it isn't. Yeah, I, I recognise that. Kieran, just to wrap this up and uh, go back to where we where we started, the Cabinet Office has a really important national security function, as we touched on, in reforming the Cabinet Office, in changing and creating a new uh, Prime Minister's uh, office. What are the uh, national security sort of uh, red lines that they mustn't, uh, mustn't touch? What are the aspects of um, national security that the um, uh, Cabinet Office really needs to protect and make sure that it, uh, are high functioning? Well, Cass has slaughtered the ultimate sacred cow by saying the cabinet office isn't the centre of the uh, universe. But I think I that, always isn't always isn't always. But I think I mean I have a lot of sympathy with David's point around 
keeping the central functions relatively lean. And there is always a risk of mission creep. But to go back to what I said at the beginning, I think the coalition reforms, the Cameron reforms of the national security system have led to um, not just greater cohesion, because that sounds very bland and passive, but actually it's better governance and it's better use of British capabilities, frankly, and uh, it's, 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 it's better strategy. I think we do want to uh, preserve that. It's actually classic cabinet government. I think we want to prevent it. And there has there was a sense of this sometimes in my time of uh, sort of slightly further encroaching into the legitimate policy, um, sometimes even borderline operational roles of departments and agencies. We want to caution against that. But I think that, frankly, in one respect, and maybe you can just say I'm, I'm party pre here, but I think that Actually, the national security structures in place for the last 12 years or so are a decent model for other parts of the system to look at for examples of of good practice. It is a good way of fusing state capabilities into a more coherent whole. So I would hope that that is looked at and whatever reforms are put into place. And that is an excellent note to wrap things up on. Uh, Thanks, Kieran. So that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Kath Haddon. Thank you. Kieran Martin. Thank you. And David Eddington. Thanks, Alex. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, then check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Uh, You can hear even more content from Kath and me delving deeply into the other part of the centre of uh, UK government number 10. And next week, join us as we launch our annual review of all things government, Whitehall Monitor 2022. Uh, In an event, we're going to look at how COVID has changed government and what it means for the government's agenda. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, whichever is your platform of choice, and please leave us a review too. And do check out our website, www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our latest work. So it may be recess, but Inside Briefing never recedes. We'll be back next week with Bromwyn Maddox returning to the chair. See you then.